This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. We are getting daily assurances that the vaccine rollout will soon ramp up exponentially. The province unveiled plans for phase two when the mass vaccination centers will be open and operating and the phase one priority people will have had their shots. That means the 80 plus frontline healthcare workers, indigenous people, the homeless, and others. But the list of criteria that will make people eligible for phase two has prompted a lot of worry about queue jumping. That's because in addition to going by age, it will include people with certain health conditions. But they won't have to prove or qualify that they have any of these conditions, the province is relying on the honor system. And some say we actually just don't have the wherewithal to be checking those things. So what do you think? Do you think it's going to be a big problem? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We're going to be checking in with a number of people, starting with Carrie Bowman and Dr. Alon Vaisman. Dr. Carrie Bowman is a bioethicist at the University of Toronto. Dr. Alon Vaisman, infectious disease specialist at the University Health Network. Hello, and thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Libby. Hi. Let's start with Dr. Bowman. Uh, so what do you think? Do you think this is ripe for abuse? You know, it could be. We, we just don't have any data on it. You know, I, I think if we're going in this direction, it's so important that we get the message out there, including this show, that, you know, if anyone attempts to game the system, this is really, really wrong. You're potentially bringing, you know, harm and illness to other people because other people are, have priority for good medical reason. So, you know, I just don't know, Libby. I mean, how many people would be gaming the system? Look, if we had brilliant electronic records like some places in the, in the world do and this <laughs> continent do, we oh. wouldn't have this problem. Uh, but we don't. And... Um, I, you know, I, I rely on the many people I work with. I'm told that if the system's going to stay nimble and efficient, you can't have people lining up with all sorts of papers and documents and pill bottles as to, you know, what their story is. Um, and I'm really hoping a lot of family docs can pick this up, but I realize they can't pick up all of it, meaning no one knows their patients better than the family docs. So it may be, but I think we have to get the message out there. And look, I, that message will resonate with some people who say, I don't want anything to do with getting in the way of someone that needs it more. And other people don't care. And I don't know what those numbers are going to be. Dr. Weissman, what's your view? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true, that if we had a system that was, could very quickly assess this kind of thing, it would be great. But given the situation we have now, the limitations, it wouldn't be practical for these uh, clinics to go through each patient one by one and ask them to provide proof. That would mean people need to bog down family doctors who are already very busy uh, or other clinics to get this proof. So, you know, of course, there's going to be some abuse of the system, but overall, I don't think it's going to be a major issue. I think people are going to get vaccinated within a short few months, any event. So hopefully people can be honest and uh, not take advantage. Uh, here's here's what I think, and I want to throw it out to our listeners too. Four one six three six zero zero seven forty toll free one eight six six seven forty four seven forty. Now, obviously, there are some people who are all always going to think that they're more important, and they will deliberately queue jump. But just in my own life, um, if you're self assessing. People have very different views of their own health and the seriousness of what they live with. I mean, uh, 
again, speaking for myself, I have friends that I consider to be complete hypochondriacs. I have friends, you know, in the Goldilocks zone that uh, are appropriate. And on the other end of the spectrum, people who ignore things that they definitely should look at and, and poo-poo it all. And, and I think that if you open it up uh, that way and it's self-assessing, in addition to people who deliberately jump the queue, there are people who consider themselves worthy. And and even with a family doctor uh, somehow prioritizing it, if a patient gets, a longstanding patient gets in touch and says, hey, doctor, uh, remember I had that bout of asthma. Uh, I want to get in that line. Do you think they'll deny them? Mm-hmm. No, I, I, that's a really good point because for every single one of us, and I'm sure myself included, our own assessment of our health status is probably a little off, right? We overestimate, we underestimate, we can't see the forest for the trees. But, you know, or or someone's going to say to their doctor, I had a bout of asthma and you don't know about it, which is, you know, potentially even fraudulent. I just, I, I so wish we had some sense of what the numbers were going to be like. I'm very hopeful that this will work. But look, I, you know, I did some interviews on this yesterday and I got some very, very heartfelt emails last night from people saying, you should see what I'm living with and what my wife is living with and how long it's been and the thought that anyone can just go into these lines and go ahead of me with any kind of story is just devastating and they have a point uh, yeah, and I mean, there there are certain things, I mean, for instance I, I understand that people living with obesity will be in that group and there is scientific evidence that that puts them more at risk uh, for severe disease and death. So there's evidence about that. But but then you have the question, so does somebody with that condition who is 45 go ahead of somebody who is 74 years old and healthy? Right. The, yeah. the, the level of detail we have with these, it's not going to get down to that kind of granularity. We don't even have the science to be able to compare one-to-one, one patient with such condition versus one to the other. So I think the approach is generally a sensible one, which is that people with a certain pre-existing list of conditions that could be made available to Ontarians to look at it, look through it and identify whether they are one of those individuals and present for vaccination as, as soon as possible. So, I, I mean, again, that's why there is a certain perception of a of free, free-for-all because there are lots of different groups in in the priorities and and then it's a matter of of who can you know get a get a booking first which you know is to a certain extent almost a matter of luck um dr bowman yeah no it's a matter of luck and it's a matter of you know who's got a son or a grandson or a granddaughter uh, who's willing who you're going to pay this is a real example by the way from from what I've been hearing, literally pay someone to stay online for the hours and hours it's going to take to get a booking, uh, you know. So so there's that. And, and imagine people that have no one to help them with those types of bookings. Look, is there injustice in the system? There's no question about it. But, you know, I don't want to simplify it. If, if, if there's enough vaccines and things begin to move quite quickly, and that's what we're told is likely going to happen, um, it, it'll be a rough couple of weeks in terms of ethics and, and priorities, but it will start to get better very quickly. That's that's my hope. Uh, I don't see any easy way around it. You know, my take on this, remembering I'm PhD, not MD, but when I when I look at, but I, you know, I've worked in hospitals, you know, most of my life. Um, when I look at the Ontario criteria, it makes a lot of sense to me. I do get it that there's there's subjectivity to a lot of these categories, but I don't know what more you can do. I find the categories very clear to me, but there's subjectivity within those categories. Okay, and I mean, my thing, and it, it has been a bee in my bonnet, and I know that there, there are some people in the audience who want me to get off this, but I won't, is that, uh, you know, when I look at the countries that have been most successful, they say the biggest factor for uh, severe disease and death is age, and they go by age, and it's simple, and it gets done. And uh, all of this, I think, you know, complicates it, and it means that there are probably quite a few people, a lot of people, who, uh, for various reasons, will have to wait longer than they should when they are at risk because of their age. Yeah. 
But, you know, you're not alone with that. You know, that, that's pretty well my view. I, I, with so much, even from an eth- as an ethical construct, if there's ambiguity with complex diagnoses, what cuts through that ambiguity? And the one thing that cuts through the ambiguity is a person's date of birth. Of course, there's a lot of factors that come into all of our health status. So I, I do think age has to be prioritized very, very strongly. Um, I just don't think we can have a situation where age is the only criteria for long periods of time. But until we reach especially those higher cohorts of age, uh, we really have to. And, you know, there's many people that would support that argument. The way to cut through the complexity is, is stay with age as a primary driver of this from both an ethical and, and, you know, clinical point of view. Okay, well, they haven't done that so far, Dr. Vaseman. Right. Once you get down to a certain level of age, when you start opening it up to people with the comorbidities, then I think uh, you are going to capture a lot of people who would strongly benefit. Uh, so, for example, we're starting off with the 80 or older, then moving down one age group, and then that group with the comorbidities will be allowed to be vaccinated as well. So you're getting into a group of people who may be at higher risk despite being a lower age. So either way, you cut it, even though it's a more objective measure, and I, I agree there's complexity there. Even though it's a more objective measure, you may, in fact, be doing a lot of benefit for a larger group of people if you start including the people with comorbidities, even even younger people in their 20s or 30s or 40s. So you're going to have a some kind of, you know, imbalance regardless of which approach you take. Okay. Uh you know, again, I've I've taken calls from people who are saying, uh, you know, I'm I'm 82. Why is my 30 year old massage therapist getting a shot before me? But uh, let's take a call from Walter in Hamilton. Hi, Walter. Oh, hi. Thank you very much for taking my call. Go ahead. I'm going to be turning 73 in a couple of weeks. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. But. I certainly don't have congratulations to those who are rolling out the vaccine in Ontario. It seems to me that we in our 70s are shoved constantly back and further back at the end of the queue. And the first thing I know, when am I going to get my shot? And what's even worse is that they got this thing on the computer, and I'm not a computer guy, and uh, I'm a blind person, uh, legally blind, and I don't like computers. They're too hard, too intimidating for me to use, so I avoid them. I hear you. And uh, on top of that, how am I going to find out when I'm going to get my shot? Because this province is always playing around, always changing the uh, priority thing or border. Why don't they simplify things and they do like the other country to succeed? You start with the... 90s, 80s, 70s, 60s, and you work your way down and stop uh, taking different people for different excuse and wedge them ahead of the queue while some of us are shoved back and uh, we're really, uh, literally ignored as if we don't even exist, those of us in our six, uh, 70s. Okay, Walter, um, uh, thanks for your call. Um there should be a call center rolled out soon if you can't deal with the computer. I, I certainly, I totally understand your frustrations. I know that uh, in terms of uh, community health, rolling this out, I'm pretty sure St. Joe's in Hamilton is doing that. It's not for people in their 70s yet, but hopefully um, at, at the beginning of next month, that's what they say. Um, uh, do either Dr. Vaseman or Dr. Bowman have any advice for Walter? Uh, yes. Yeah, so, go ahead. Sorry, yes. Uh, in the city of Toronto, there are multiple uh, hospitals who already have pre-registration available. Uh, not quite yet for the 73-year-old group, but they will be soon. And then also there's multiple vaccination sites that are not for with hospitals in the city of Toronto where people can call so they acknowledge the fact that there are many people who don't have, may not have access to computers or may not be able to use a computer for whatever reason. And so there are phone numbers that everyone can access to, to help with their vaccination and to help get booked. Okay, Walter, uh, yeah. I, hope, uh, I hope that helps. I hope, you get your, I hope you get your appointment soon enough. Thank you for your All call. Right, yeah. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Let's go Let me, to I would just I would just add I agree hospitals is, is, is Walter's best bet. But look, the, the people in their 70s, it, it's, a, it's a very difficult cohort at this point because, you know, healthy people between 60 and 64 are going to be vaccinated with AstraZeneca within days. 
And, you know, we're not using that for over 65, but you go one province over, you know, and Quebec is. So these things, you know, are very frustrating for people. And I've, I've heard a lot of concern about people in their 70s, even with some really major health problems, just not knowing where to turn and what's next. Well, you know, that, that's been another bee in my bonnet all week. Uh, and that is AstraZeneca, that for some reason, NASI decided to nix it for people over 65, just as major European countries, France and Germany, reversed the original guidance and said it was fine. AstraZeneca has been uh, used to vaccinate most of the UK population. They're number three in the rollout. Quite successfully. Very Quite successfully. successfully. People have no issue there. I mean, I've talked about our, our personal contacts there, and, and they're getting it in Quebec, and there are so many people over 65 who are saying, uh, you know, I'm rolling up my sleeve. I would be happy to take AstraZeneca. And here in Ontario, no. Yeah, although that could change at any time. But right now, no. And for the foreseeable future, no. Well, it's exactly. Tough. Just it's uh, And, you know, it's, it's one thing for medical people to say, but the data this, the data that. I get it. I follow the data. But for the public, it, you know, this just scrambles the message. And it also erodes confidence. Something terrible. Yeah. Dr. Vaisman, do you have a, a view on AstraZeneca? I absolutely agree. Unfortunately, the well has been poisoned, so to speak, for those individuals who are looking forward to getting vaccinated. And now there's AstraZeneca with this concern. There's a whole bunch of misinformation going on. And it would have been very helpful for that recommendation to at least be delayed until more data came out. Yeah, it was very unfortunate. And now, and now as Dr. Bowman mentioned, there's this kind of paradox or unusual situation where 60 to 64-year-olds are going to get vaccinated before 65 to 80 year old, which doesn't make much sense, but that's that's only because of the quirk of the situation with AstraZeneca that elderly people are, you know, rightfully they're they're not going to want to take it because they heard so much negative stuff about it, well, even no, though it's likely effective. I heard. Uh, first of all, I object to people who are 65 and 70 being called elderly, but um, uh, yes, I agree that with a lot of people, the, the the well is poisoned there. But I'm also hearing from a lot of people in that age group who would be happy to take that vaccine. Yeah, and it's not. It's just not available to them because the national panel made that decision or recommendation and Ontario decided to follow it for some reason. And I just looked it up and, and even people on the panel are saying, well, NASI may change its mind, but the next meeting is not till March 24th. And there's 190,000 doses that expire on April the 2nd, I think. And yeah. uh, they will be hopefully in, in the arms of 60 to 64 year olds and our friend Walter there, who's over 70, he's going to be waiting. Yeah, he won't get it. I know. And if if that distribution works, it's it's it, it's it's a very difficult one. I know a lot of very medically informed people, uh, sixty five plus, that would be more than willing to take AstraZeneca. They followed the research. They they understand it. It's it, it's difficult, and the erosion of trust is what I I keep circling back to is just huge, and the anger that it engenders. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the other message, I'm going to take, uh, try to take a, a few more calls before we wrap sure. up. Um, but, um, the message that, that I'm trying to get is that, hey, this whole thing is new and the information is changing and the fact that it's changing isn't a bad thing. But I know that's very hard for a lot of people to wrap their heads around. Yeah. But you're right, Libby, because a lot of the new information, you know, a lot of it, when you look at it, it's fairly positive, right? You know, yeah. actually, we can do better. Actually, it's more effective. Actually, it's better with this group. Actually, there's more vaccines. Like, a lot of it's actually good news. But it's also the people's acceptance of science. People don't see science as some moving target. And it erodes people's confidence when people start telling you, actually, science changes day by day. What? Really? You know? Um Anyway, that's a separate conversation. It, it, it is. I'm going to take a very quick call from Dave in Brampton. Hi, Dave. Hi. Uh, my uh, comment is my, my son-in-law went online to, do, uh, to get me the vaccine. He had no problem. And then my, I told my neighbor about this, and he got his daughter to try and get the, him and his wife on. They will not accept two people 
with this one email. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, which is stupid. I mean, she, he could she could have done both of them, and they don't accept it. They only will let, allow you to do one. Oh, oh, and that's where? I mean, that's got to be in one of the local hospital systems because the big one isn't up yet. That's good to know. Where That's in Brampton? Yeah, that's in Brampton. That's which hospital? Uh, the Civic. Civic. Okay, mm-hmm. people, now we know. There's another thing. <laughs> Thanks for bringing our attention to that, Dave. You're welcome. Okay. Um, uh, people, Free For All Friday, not that far off. Uh, uh, I'm going to have to wrap things up and let me give 20 seconds each, starting with Dr. Vaseman. Yeah, I think, uh, as you said, there's a lot of challenges with the rollout. Um, there's going to be queue jumping for sure, but hopefully over the short term, the vaccine supply increases and that will smooth out over a few weeks after that. Kerry? Uh, you know, I, I would simply say I, I just draw to everyone's attention the obvious that queue jumping is a serious ethical problem. You're, you're really standing in the way of people's, you know, physical safety, security, and well-being. It's not a minor thing. Let's just get it as quick as we can. Um, I really, really see it as something serious, and I hope there will be some. I hope it's absolutely minimal. Okay. Thank you both, Dr. Alon Vaseman and Dr. Kerry Bowman. Appreciate your time. Thank you. You're very welcome. Take care. Okay, and uh, Ontario's Liberal leader, Stephen Del Duca, is very concerned about this and other issues in the rollout, and he joins me now. Hello there. Hello? Hi there. How are you, Libby? Fine. How are you? I'm doing okay. Thanks for having me on. You're very welcome. So uh, we've just heard from a couple of experts, and there is concern about queue jumping in the second phase uh, when there's this whole kind of uh, laundry list of conditions that qualify you to go to the head of the line, but no proof required. Yeah, I think it's, again, like we've seen, I will say throughout the second wave, but in particular with the vaccine rollout, um, way too much confusion, way too much incoherence in what the governments and public health leaders have been kind of saying, different approaches in different regions. I heard some of your, I heard one of your last callers talk about a difficulty they experienced or someone they know experienced in Brampton. I will actually tell you that I had a good experience for my parents in York region, um, but it's just, it strikes me as really weird that in an, in an area like the Greater Toronto and Hamilton area, frankly, even province-wide, recognizing that there are differences in each region, that we can't have a, a clear, consistent, um, coherent plan so that everybody understands what the guidelines are, what the rules are. If you've got a pre-existing medical condition, I understand why you should be prioritized. You should have to demonstrate that that is the case, so there is no queue jumping. And I don't know why this stuff wasn't thought of in November and December. That's the part that's really driving me crazy. There, there are those who say that uh, that we don't have the wherewithal to check, and that it would really slow things up if if uh, he, uh, Dr. Vaseman was pointing out. I think it was Dr. Vaseman. If people start lining up with papers and pill bottles to show that they they really have what they say they have. Yeah, and I and I get that, but again, this is this is kind of why I'm talking about how this should have been thought of in November or December. And look, I know that we can't go backwards. We are where we are, but it is very frustrating, I think, for everybody to know that we we knew we knew as a province, we knew as a country that vaccines would arrive. Thank goodness that they've come as early as they've come. All things considered, they're here now, and yet the story continues to evolve and change fairly dramatically every couple of days about. Now there's, you know, we've got one ages 60 to 64 in a pilot program in pharmacies. Okay, great. But again, why is that coming kind of right now? What, the, the decision to say we're pushing things out to public health units for them to lead, it's a good concept. I support the concept. Why not announce that again in December or very early January? So it just seems like the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. I, I take the doctor's point about how difficult or confusing that could be while people are lining up. But if the conditions and the guidelines were established clearly towards the end of last year or very early this year, we probably wouldn't be as confused as we are right now in facing the ethical dilemma of people who might choose to queue jump. And I say that believing Ontarians are, for the most part, wanting to adhere to the rules, but we should be able to build a system that's a little bit more foolproof than this. Well, yeah, the point that I'm making is that in addition to people who are deliberately 
cheating. Uh, you know, people have very different perceptions of right. their health conditions. And there's somebody who might, you know, say I had asthma or I had this and I have a pre-existing condition and I'm at risk. And somebody with the exact same thing who says, yeah, I'm fine, you know, and, exactly. and I, I, you know, in, in my own circle of friends have people with very different attitudes at ha- how they approach their health. Yeah, no, for sure. And so, um, I don't think anybody's expecting absolute perfection. I just think the way that this has unfolded, in particular in the last two or three weeks, has been really disappointing. Um, I Again, I had a great experience with my parents in York Region. I know people in Toronto who are very frustrated. We heard your caller talk about the situation around emails in Brampton. We're not, it's not like we're talking about opposite ends of the province, you know, Windsor to Wawa. We're talking about regions that neighbor one another. Brampton and Vaughan neighbor each other. The fact that we have completely separate systems and approaches um, you know, west of Highway 50 versus east of Highway 50 is just crazy to me. It Well, <laughs> to you and a lot of other people, I mean, and, and uh, you know, the situation, I, I'm not sure what prompted Ontario's decision not to use AstraZeneca, where Quebec said, yes, it's fine. But, you know, the national panel made that decision just as very advanced, very large countries, Germany and France, reversed their guidance and said, we originally didn't have enough evidence. Now we have plenty of evidence from the UK, which uses that vaccine mostly on all age groups. It's fine. Yeah. And so in Quebec, they're in a position because they're using it that they will they they're going to start going down the age group very shortly and i'm getting calls from people in their 70s and frankly also people over 80 who can't get in yeah no but again that goes to the whole the whole issue of the confusion the lack of a real plan from the very beginning and frankly also how consistently throughout the pandemic it just feels to me not feels to me it, it, it's a fact that Ontario has lagged behind other provinces in some really critical areas. So we could talk about long-term care and the hiring up of personal support workers and their training. Quebec started theirs June the 2nd. Doug Ford just announced Ontario doing the same thing a few weeks ago, similar with the approaches on the AstraZeneca vaccine. I don't understand why our province, with all of our capacity, all of our prosperity, and some really brilliant people in the healthcare world, why we are continuing to lag behind, except I say that it is a failure of leadership coming from the very top. Um, Yeah, you know, in our next segment, we're going to talk about some of the explosive testimony to the Long-Term Care Commission, so I may as well ask you about it. Uh, Alison McGeer, very senior member of the scientific panel. We all know her back from SARS, and she says that, uh, that... we did poorly in the second wave and we did Ontario chose not to do the things that were necessary because of the expense, which I think is, it's, it's an explosive charge though. When we watched Quebec do those things, introduce paid training and put infection control officers in every home, you know, we all kept asking why isn't Ontario doing that? We did. And we kept on, you know, we were spun by Premier Doug Ford and his team about how much they claimed they were doing. They blamed liberals. They blamed the federal government. They, you know, they blamed everybody under the sun instead of saying, we have the financial capacity. I mean, let's not forget, Libby, that throughout this pandemic, whether it's the financial accountability officer or they themselves, their finance minister saying this just a few weeks ago, when they announced that they had put $4 billion into their contingency fund, which was a choice, by the way, um, they, they had the money. Doug Ford had the money. He just didn't have the interest or the experience to know what needed to be done in that moment. Instead of just getting up in front of the people of Ontario, issuing platitudes every day, bragging about how great Ontario uh, was doing. And in fact, hundreds of additional seniors in this province lost their lives in the second wave in long-term care. It was always going to be tough, but I think a lot of them lost their lives for reasons that were within Doug Ford's control to prevent or at least reduce the risk, and he chose not to. And that's, to me, heartbreaking. I think it's absolutely unacceptable, and I I believe there needs to be accountability for that. Okay, well, let us hope that there is accountability. On that note, I will wrap you up. Stephen Del Duca, leader of the Ontario Liberal Party. 
Thank you, Libby. Thank you very much. Okay, people, we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will talk to the deputy leader of the opposition, the NDP, about that report on long-term care. We'll have that when we return. And uh, we'll keep taking your calls about the vaccine rollout. So hang with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. I am about to talk to Deputy NDP Leader Sarah Singh, but first I just want to wrap up something that is hanging from the previous conversation because I think we might have some useful information. So first I'm going to take a very quick call from Keith in Toronto. Hi, Keith. Hi. So you want to talk... Nice to talk to you again. Yeah, I had only two comments. North York General, I tripped. Uh, they're only taking one registration at a time. I tried to get, uh, I thought that I could do my wife's at the same time, but I couldn't. Because you have the same email. That's right. Okay. Um, well, she doesn't have an email, so uh, I had to do uh, like a twice sort of thing. Okay, well, maybe... the, the point, thanks for bringing that to our attention. The point that I wanted to make for people, if that's an issue, it is very quick to set yourself up with a Gmail account. It, it takes just a few minutes. So if you're trying to register two people who share an email and if somebody is helping you or you do it yourself, just uh, set up the second email account uh, before you do it and you won't have a problem. Okay, thank you. And I wonder, what, seeing as they have both our names, would they, would they do both at the same time or could it be separate? Uh, I think it could be separate and, and you're lucky to get. So yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't be complaining about that. No, I'm not. I'm just wondering. The other question was uh, some hostels in Toronto, uh, in Toronto are doing the over 80 people. Yep. Uh, is that uh, is there some reason some of the other ones aren't? Uh, uh, probably because they don't have supply. Uh, or I, I don't. I can't really answer that. But if there's a hospital doing it in your catchment area, that's your best bet. Oh yeah, but they're they're not doing it right now. But I assume it'll happen. Okay. Uh, thanks very much. Liz. Okay. You're welcome, Keith. Thanks. Okay, so to uh, Deputy Leader of the NDP, Sarah Singh, and uh, as I was mentioning before, the Long-Term Care Commission heard shocking testimony from Alison McGeer, and she said, to remind you, that the province rejected proposals that would help long-term care residents through the second wave because they were too expensive. Sarah Singh, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me on, Libby. Okay, so uh, what was your reaction reading that transcript? You know, it was really heartbreaking and shocking to to learn um, that the that the government really chose not to spend the money to help us protect families and seniors in long term care. Um, you know, I think it it's really concerning that the government could have done more to protect, uh, you know, our grandparents and, and vulnerable community members in those homes, but they made those callous decisions um, to put money and, and uh, you know, a financial sort of decisions ahead of saving lives. Uh, and I think for families across the province, you know, learning that this is how the government approached um, the handling of the, the sort of pandemic uh, is, is really disappointing. Um, you know, the government continued time and time again um, to say that they were building an iron ring, whether that's the premier or the minister of long-term care, that an iron ring was going to be put into those homes. They were doing everything at their disposal to help protect our loved ones. Um, to find out through this testimony um, from Dr. McGreer that that did not happen, I think, is is really disappointing and shocking for many. Okay, I, I, I want to read some direct quotes because, you know, the first thing, of, you know, when I heard the headline is, you know, where does she have the proof of that? And uh, she sits on the province's science advisory group. And, and here's what she said. She said, a number of proposals went to the ministry, and that's the Ministry of Health, though some may have gone before the Ministry of Long-Term Care. Uh, And she said all of them, uh, they were proposals about what could be done. All of them were deemed by the ministry, that's the Ministry of Health, to be too expensive. 
So uh, here's a, a, another question that I have. You know, when she refers to the ministry, I'm I'm assuming that she refers to the bureaucrats, the civil servants who are running it. So from what you know, if if the ministry or if some civil servants deemed it too expensive, would it would it have even been put before the uh, the minister? You know, I think at the end of the day, the buck still stops with the premier and the minister as they are making those final decisions. Um, uh, I think that the the decision was made throughout the pandemic um, to not spend the money where it needed to be spent to not make the investments. Um, you know, whether that was addressing staffing shortages, whether that was helping to transfer patients out of ward rooms, uh, whether that was you know making sure there were infection control experts in every single home. Those investments did not happen. And I think the testimony is very clear that those proposals were put forward um, to the ministry, uh, which I would argue includes the Minister of Long-Term Care and Health, um, in making those decisions to not move forward uh, and make those investments that were needed to, frankly, protect our seniors, prevent deaths. Um, You know, many people died very lonely and painful deaths because these investments weren't made. Um, And it's really disappointing that the government made those decisions um, based on trying to save money rather than uh, save lives. uh, Sarah, does it not make a difference who made those decisions? I mean, to me, it does make a difference. You know, did did that proposal ever get before the minister, I mean, especially if you want to hold people accountable. I mean, and though the bucks definitely should stop there one way or another, but um, do you not think it makes a difference? It absolutely does, but I think that those proposals certainly did come to as minister's attention, and those decisions were made uh, not to make those investments um, because it would cost too much. Um, and, and again, I think that's really cold and cruel um, to be, you know, sort of looking at folks as an opportunity cost when we should have been throwing everything we have um, at at this pandemic and into our long-term care homes to protect our seniors and loved ones. The government, frankly, chose not to, Libby. Um, and at the end of the day, this is why we have the Long-Term Care Commission. I mean, New Democrats pushed for a public inquiry, but we have the commission to help us bring uh, this to light and help us have some transparency and accountability. What the minister and the premier continued to reassure the public was that every investment that was needed was being made. Every measure that they could have implemented was being implemented. And what we are learning through the commission is that that was not the case. What do you think can be done uh, or what do you plan to do in terms of trying to hold the government to account? You know, I think there are a number of measures that we have um, proposed uh, to the government. You know, I think as opposition, we have tried to not just be critical, but also propose solutions that the government should implement. You know, for example, infection control experts in every home, having a minimum standard of four hours of care for folks, um, ensuring that we address the staffing crisis. These are all elements that New Democrats have proposed in the legislature, um, as well as through our uh, uh, plan uh, in terms of how to re-envision long-term care here in the province of Ontario. What's unfortunate is that the government has chosen not to act on those recommendations, not only from New Democrats, but from its own scientific panel and health experts around around the table. Um, But it continues to choose to save money while it sits on billions of dollars from the federal government. Um, It chose not to spend those dollars into into our sector here. It just announced that it will eventually get to four hours of care. Uh, That's that's not for a few years. And it announced a big hiring spree after this is all over. Are those good measures? Libby, absolutely, they're great measures, but we're about to celebrate the one-year anniversary of the pan, like you know, the, the pandemic, and we're, we're now hearing these measures come forward. Where was government all summer long, while other provinces? Staffed up long-term care. They hired PSWs. They increased infection control measures in those homes. This government didn't do any of that. It's cold comfort for families, I think, now. After the fact, after we've gone through a second wave, we are potentially facing a third wave. But now, a year later, that's when this government decides to act. I, I think it's a little too little and a little too late uh, for many people who have already lost their loved ones and many that are continuing to suffer in our long-term care homes currently. 
Okay. Sarah Singh, Deputy Leader of the NDP in Ontario. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Libby. Have a great one and stay safe, everyone. Thank you. Okay. We are going to take another break. And when we come back, uh, sort of on the same subject, uh, you know, one of the big issues is the way people are paid in long-term care and for-profit homes. And we're going to talk about that when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Well, one of the biggest issues underlying care in long-term care and the staffing crisis is the level of pay. And also this week on Monday, we celebrated or at least paid lip service to International Women's Day. And the fact of it is that as far as we've come, Women still earn a lot less than men, uh, in many cases, uh, 70 cents for every dollar that men earn. Now, the good news is that female staff at for-profit nursing homes have won a pay equity fight in the courts. So what is that all about? And will it ensure better things going forward? Right now, let's bring in Vicki McKenna, who is president of the Ontario Nurses Association. Hello there, Vicki. How are you? I'm pretty fine, thanks. Good afternoon, Libby. Good afternoon. So uh, tell me, um, uh, what was this decision about in, you know, layman's terms? No legalese, please. Yeah. No, okay. I'll try my very best. And I, I'm no lawyer. Just so you know, I'm a, I'm a registered nurse. And I will say that, first off, this has been, you know, is shocking to many. This has been a 15-year battle that we've had uh, in regard to fair and equitable payment for primarily, of course, a female-dominated uh, workforce uh, that works in for-profit long-term care homes. And we partnered with uh, SEIU, the Service Employees uh, International Union, who represents a large bulk of, of workers uh, in the system as well, um, because they were fighting the same battle we were. And this was, is, is a, we're fighting on a technical issue, to be very honest, but I'll try to simplify it as much as I can. And I also will want to highlight that this is a fight with the uh, for-profit nursing homes, but it's also government, uh, the attorney general is, is, uh, fighting alongside the employers on this and has been, um, a major challenge in, in the issue as well. So what I'll start out with saying is pay equity, and many people think pay equity, and just as you described at the beginning, uh, you know, people think we've come so far. Uh, and some people will say to me, what do you mean pay equity? Isn't that over? <laughs> and I wish, I wish it were, uh, but it isn't. And the fight for pay equity continues, and it continues for a number of reasons depending upon the sector you work in. But in this particular instance, it is about the method of calculating pay equity and pay equity maintenance. Okay, so if I may just jump in there, uh, the way pay equity works is that uh, you find comparable professions. I mean, especially if you have a profession like PSWs that is really overwhelmingly female, uh, rather than making sure that the few men in there get, you know, don't get paid more, you go and find something else that is considered to be a job of equal value. So what would that be? What's a job of equal value to being a PSW? In the beginning of when the pay equity was first, um, you know, when, when the decisions came down at the very beginning of pay equity and when the first pay equity calculations were done for this particular group, uh, because it's a predominantly female workforce for nurses and health, other health professionals, what they, they do a proxy pay equity method. And I don't want to get in the technicalities of it, but in, in sort of the grouping, they would look for a male dominated profession, uh, of equal value, uh, of equal, you know, that the work is valued at the same rate and what they were being paid. So, 
you know, years and years ago, there was there that work was done, and there was a male comparator uh, that was this is this is your comparator, and then the salaries were aligned. But so that's good. But what was but the male comparator? If well, I may ask, it actually it actually the comparator that they used was in the municipal sector because in the municipalities, many people know there are there are homes for the aged that are run by the municipalities. They have male comparators of municipal workers uh, where there's a predominantly male workforce. So way back then, Libby, that's what the comparator was. So that's good, check. But you have to maintain that, which means you have to go back and look at that male comparator over the years and see if their pay has been adjusted. And if it has, has the group that was compared that you compared yourself to was it aligned and it so it's all about maintenance of that whole system so you do it once to begin but then you have to maintain it as the years go on so that male comparator group could have you know had substantive raises over the years that these these workers did not receive so the fight in the courts was about Proxy pay equity is what they call this. Proxy pay equity because you don't have a male work group in, say, the for-profit nursing home, so you have to look outside, which is allowable and which is the method to use. So you do that, and then in the years that follow, you have to go back and look at that male comparator rule and make sure that your salaries are still in alignment. That was really the ba- That's really the battle. Uh, and what the fight was in the courts. And so, you know, we've been through this, as I said, 15 years at various levels of government, as well as the, tri- of the, the tribunal, the pay equity tribunal, then in the courts and appeal, appealed and appealed. And now, the you know, in a cross-claim appeal, I mean, it's all in the world Let- of lawyers, but here we are now 15 years later, and we're successful yet again. Let, let me ask you this. Um, nurses who work in long-term care, they don't get paid the same as, say, nurses in hospitals, do they? They do not. But that, that's, that's actually another issue. <laughs> yes, we don't have equity across the sectors for nurses. And in this sector, in long-term care, where we try to, you know, we have nurses who work in a for-profit home, for instance, and then look across the street at a municipal nursing home, and the nurses there make substantively more. And so, you know, this is, this is the equity issues that exist in the sector. So we look to, to like work. Uh, so we, of course, looked at the municipal homes as well, because they're really our best comparator uh, when we're talking about nurses in particular. And that's the group that I represent. So I can't really talk about the other workers because I don't have all that background. But nurses, you know, should, doesn't it make sense that nurses who work in a long-term care facility um, should be making the same amount of money? And they're not. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so that is... Uh, where, you know, for us, where our focus is, is, is that certainly, uh, SEIU or the other unions involved would have to give you specifics on the job classes that they represent, um, as well on their comparators. But it's, you know, it is about fairness and equity. And in this sector, one of the things that nurses, uh, tell me is that, you know, like, I really love long-term care. I really want to work there, but I don't want to work in that home because, you know, why would I do that? I'm not going to have the same working conditions as if I would work across at the municipal home. Or, you know, so, you know, we we have a problem recruiting nurses into this sector for sure. We need to make sure they're paid fairly and equitably, and it's for all workers Staffing is a huge problem in long-term care, and it's about recruiting nurses and healthcare professionals, and it's about retaining them. Well, it's and also we have to be fair, right? Yeah, I mean, in in the economy in general, there's there's a, a discrepancy between, say, 
union shops and non-union shops, uh, uh, you know, for the mm-hmm. same type of job. And, uh, you know, small business and big business. I mean, there, mm-hmm. there are these discrepancies all the way throughout the economy. There are. There are. And, and if you look at other jurisdictions, like I agree, I know that's true. If you look at other jurisdictions across this country, you will see in many other provinces, for instance, is that nurses are paid the same no matter where they work, whether they work in long-term care, whether they work in a hospital, they work in community. It, you know, there is equity in the province because they are in that particular, those provinces because they are paid in the same way. And that's a piece that Ontario is, you know, we're not there in Ontario, and I don't know that we'll ever get there, to be honest, not maybe in my lifetime, but these are some of the situations that occur where we know in other countries as well, it's very similar to that, uh, where, you know, we see these disparities and we see, you know, we worry about migration of workers um, across across the health sector in particular because they need some sense of job security uh, because, you know, they're like everybody else. They have to, you know, put a roof over their head and feed their families. And so sometimes the decisions that they make are maybe not the decision where they really fill their niche, where they really want to work, but they have to or they need to work in a place where they'll be fairly compensated. Um, So what are you hoping, is is this going to solve things for you, this decision? (laughs) Well, you know, I'm laughing because I don't know if there will be any other appeals uh, by government or these employers. I haven't yet heard that. We'll have to wait and see. They could appeal again, uh, and this could go on longer. Um, it would be good if it was like, okay, haven't we, haven't we all spent, haven't, hasn't the government, haven't these employers spent enough money on litigation and shouldn't we be done and they could be investing that money in the care of residents in this province? I think that would be a good thing. But even this decision having it come down, we still have a lot of work to do ahead of us because now we have to actually enter into the pay equity process, which is, doing the job evaluations and gathering the data to make the uh, to work through the calculations and make sure that we're we're doing things properly and we do that with employers I mean it's it's a partnership when you do this but we haven't even started because we are have been dealing with it, trying to get this decision through the courts okay for well all these years congratulations on uh, your start getting the decisions thanks very much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much, Libby, and everyone, you know, please take care of yourselves and and be safe. Okay, thank you. Thanks. Bye now. Bye-bye. Okay, that's Vicki McKenna, president of the Ontario Nurses Association. That's all the time we have for today and tomorrow. It's the official one-year anniversary since the pandemic was declared to be a pandemic. Uh, We'll be back here tomorrow. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.